listening to the Christopher Chaos Podcast. Let's talk Army. With U.S. Army veteran Christopher Chaos. So, hello, hello, hello. Welcome uh, to my podcast. I guess this is the first episode of my Christopher Chaos Podcast that I have titled Let's Talk Army. So, we're going to just kind of start this off, I guess, just talking about me. Um, before we kind of get into a lot of the other episodes that will come where I will, you know, talk about the army, talk about, you know, some things that are maybe educational, maybe some fun stories. Um, we'll also probably have like interviews with other people that are in the army, veterans of the army, and probably even outside of the army as well. We'll probably get into some other people too. Probably the majority of guests might most likely be like army related though, but, uh, to kind of, just kind of get things warmed up and get things started. I thought we would just kind of start it with me, uh, who I am, what I've done. Um, I guess just the history. I mean, some of the stuff you may know and some of it may be the first time you're actually hearing this stuff. So let's, I guess, I guess talk about from the beginning, uh, how it all kind of started with my career in the army and, and all that stuff. So um, originally it was just, I was I was a high school kid. I wasn't really too sure what it was that I wanted to do in the United States Army or what I wanted to do in my life or really for the most part, really, before I even, you know, started even thinking about the Army. But I, I wasn't like great in school. Like I, I got OK grades. Some were just average and all that kind of stuff. So I, I really didn't have a lot of high hopes for like going to college or something like that or getting some kind of college grants or something and my family wasn't poor but they weren't rich either so i didn't really kind of think that i was going to be able to get any kind of really good college education so uh i mean at that time i didn't even know about like how grants worked or how any of that stuff worked so my my plan was that you know later was that maybe i'll just join the army i'll join the army get about four years of experience and then go to college afterwards and my original intent was that I wanted to be a NASCAR mechanic. I thought that it would be cool to kind of work in the garage. I didn't want to be like on a pit crew. I wanted to work in the garage. I wanted to do something, you know, where I was like building engines and remodeling the cars or whatever. I was into NASCAR at the time. I, mean, I liked watching it and everything. And I thought that would be kind of fun. And I was doing automotive in high school too. I probably wasn't even very good, but it, it was fun. And I, it was interesting at that time. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll join the army, um, get some automotive experience and then go off to like a trade school. I think I was interested in, was it Wyoming Technical Institute? I think it was one of them. And there was another one, I think in Arizona, that was like kind of like one of the number one options that I was really interested in to try to like go off to that school to learn automotive and then try to work my way up to hopefully get to NASCAR. So the army was going to be my stepping stone to that, to get to NASCAR, to get to working in the garage at NASCAR. Um, so I, I, I took the ASVAB uh, in high school. Um, at the time when I took the ASVAB, I wasn't really too sure if I was going to join the army or not. I figured, you know, hey, I'll join or I'll, I'll take the ASVAB. And then if I do decide to join the army, cool. So when I took the ASVAB, I really didn't try super hard. I was kind of lazy about it. I was kind of like thinking about it as getting out of class and everything. So I was like, I'll just take this ASVAB, get out of class. And 
if the question's easy, cool, you know, then I answer it. But if it's something that's going to take me too long to try to figure out the answer to that question, then I'll just take a guess because the ASVAB is just multiple choice. So that's what I kind of did. And the result of that was an okay ASVAB score. I don't think it was a like a great ASVAB score, but it was a decent, I guess, ASVAB score. So I just kind of rolled with that one. That one was kind of good enough to qualify for the Army. It didn't open up a lot of opportunities for a lot of MOSs because it wasn't, like I say, a great ASVAB score, but it was a good enough score. So uh, later on, I think it was, I don't know how many months after I took the ASVAB that I started kind of really considering. I was like, okay, let's let's do the Army. I'll, I'll join the Army, get that experience, and hopefully try to work my way up like my plan to go to college and go to NASCAR and try to work that way. So started talking with the Army recruiter. Uh, oh, actually, first, I was actually going to try to do the Air Force. The Air Force was actually the first idea, but the Air Force recruiter didn't really kind of like like try to reach out to me a lot. So it was a little bit hard to kind of like ask questions and try to get the process going with the Air Force recruiter. But the Army recruiter was kind of bugging me about it. So I just kind of started going along with the Army recruiter and they were a lot more persistent than the um, uh, Air Force recruiter was. So I just kind of rolled with that. So fast forwarding then to going off to to MEPS. So I go off to MEPS to try to land an MOS that would allow me to work on vehicles, which was the 31 Bravo or no, that's an MP, right? So anyways, the mechanic uh, uh, MOS is what I was, I was after. And during the process at MEPS is when um, found out that I had a color blindness. It was like a partial color blindness, red, green color blinder, whatever it is. Like, I think I always kind of suspected that it might be something like that because I would do those fun little, you know, color tests with the dots and everything like that. And it'd always be hard for me to see some of the pages uh, in those books. So I kind of had a little bit of a suspicion that I might have some kind of color blindness, but uh, definitely confirmed once, once I got to MEPS. So at MEPS is when I found out colorblind. So that really eliminated a lot of MOSs for me. Plus the the score that I had on the ASVAB wasn't amazing. So that kind of uh, hurt a little bit as well in the, in the process. So once everything was all said and done with MEPS, they sat down with the counselor and outlined what my options were. And it wasn't very many. Um, I think I only had, what was it? I think uh, two options. I remember, so bath and laundry specialist was one of them. And the other MOS was, uh, I don't know if it's even still an MOS in the army, but it was like a seamstress type of thing. It was basically someone that repairs like tents and other types of things for the army to repair things by sewing them. So that, that was, I think that is actually still a job, but those were my options. So those, my only options that I had was those two MOSs and I was not interested in either one of those. I, I remember telling him, I was like, well, um, I, guess, I guess I'm not joining the army. Um, and you know, that's not what they want to hear. So they were, they were like, well, hang on, let's, let's see what we can do. And the, uh, a few, a little bit later, they, they got someone on the phone with me to talk to me about what it was like, um, to be a bath laundry specialist. Cause that's what they're trying to like gear me towards and be like, Oh, you'll have plenty of time to do college and all this stuff like that. And you'll have a lot of free time if you do this MOS. So they gave me on the phone with someone to tell me all about bath laundry specialists that was supposedly someone in that MOS. And later I, I found out that that was not the case. It was actually just another army recruiter that was just bullshitting me um, because my army recruiter 
actually ended up working with me when I got out of the army uh, later on as my civilian job. So I remember talking to him and he told me that, no, I remember, remember that situation. And I, we just called another army recruiter and had him bullshit to you. Uh, so sometimes army recruiters do lie sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they do. And in this case, that's what the case was. So this person on the phone that was supposed to be someone from, you know, another unit somewhere it was bath and laundry specialists and, you know, it was really just a recruiter and he's trying to tell me all about, oh yeah, it's a, it's a great MOS. You know, I got plenty of time for college on the side and, you know, there's all this free time. So don't worry about it. You know, it's a great MOS. So, uh, I, I still wasn't convinced, right? I was like, ah. I don't know. Uh, let me think about it. Let me go home. Uh, I'll think it over and I'll get back with you guys. You know, there's, they're not very reluctant to want to let me do that, but they did. Um, so I went home and a few days, maybe a week or something like that had passed. And I, you know, kind of sitting there thinking about it. And I was like, well, okay, screw it. Um, uh, otherwise, I don't know what my other plan will be. You know, I, I don't know if I'm going to go to college. I don't think I can afford that. My parents can't afford to send me. So, screw it. I'll just suck it up and take this crappy ass MOS that I don't want to do. And hopefully it works out okay. And I go to college afterwards and I can say I had the army experience, or maybe I can try to change jobs while I'm in the army kind of a thing, something. So I call him back up and I'm like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll do this, this bath and laundry specialist MOS. So they're like, cool. Uh, let's get you back over to MEPS. So we go back up to MEPS, wherever many days it was after that and get back up there. And we go up there and sit down with the counselor and, you know, say, Hey, okay, um, let's, let's do this bath and laundry specialist MOS. So they start looking at it and they're like, well, that's, uh, that's no longer available now. So I don't know if the slots got full or whatever the case was, but they're like, that's, that's not a choice anymore. I was like, well, okay, well, what are my choices now? So they're like, well, nothing, I guess they didn't really have anything. So they had me go out to the waiting room and just kind of wait. They were like, well, hang on, let's see what we can do. So I sat out in the waiting room for, it felt like maybe like half hour, maybe an hour. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was for a little while. And eventually my recruiter came out and it was like, okay, we got something for you, 88 Mike. And I, didn't, I, I don't know MOSs. I don't have them all memorized. I don't know any of them. I don't think at that time. So I was like, well, what's an 88 Mike? And he explains to me, it's a truck driver. So you'll be driving vehicles. And to me, that was actually a better option than bath laundry specialist. It wasn't mechanic like I wanted, but it was better than a bath and laundry specialist in my opinion. So I was like, okay, uh, let's do it. So we go back there, we do the contract up and everything. I think I have maybe three months, four months, something like that, um, before I'm going to leave because I graduate, uh, high school in June. I was thinking I was doing this before graduation. Um, and then, uh, it wasn't until August of 1999 that I actually ended up, uh, shipping out. So, uh, I had a little bit of time to kind of enjoy my summer hang out with friends, do all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then off to basic training. So I went off to basic combat training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And this was early in the time frame of when Fort Benning was actually first starting to do other MOSs because prior to this, Fort Benning was purely one station unit training or OSID only for 11 Bravos, 11 Charlies, those kind of MOSs. So they didn't do other MOSs and I was close to one of the first ones. I might've been like the second one, but it was definitely the first year of them doing this uh, type of thing. So I, I, I show up, we show up to basic training. Um, uh, I guess that part's getting a little bit ahead, but show up to basic training, show up to reception, nervous as hell. Um, I w wasn't super prepared for basic training. I was, you know, doing PT in high school, but 
you know, or PE actually in high school. Um, but nothing super extreme. I wasn't really trying to keep up and trying to be in great shape. So that definitely hurt me a little bit because you have that pre PT test you kind of have to do in reception to make sure you're fit enough to actually move on to do basic training. And I was pretty weak in my pushups. So I actually failed my pushups. So that, that was a little scary because they're like, well, you might not start basic training on time. So that's going to delay things. And it's a little bit scary because all the people that I showed up with were, you know, kind of, you know, getting ready to go off to basic and everything. And I had to go off to these other little temporary barracks to like kind of like the, the, the people that basically weren't in good shape. And so you did extra PT and did a little bit of working out to try to get you to pass that preliminary, that early PT test. That wasn't even like the, the, the full on PT test. It was like a lower version of the PT test. So that way you could, you know, try to pass it by doing a little extra PT. So we did that for, I think a couple of days and I was then able to pass the, the PT test, um, and still actually ship off with all the people that I showed up with. So I was lucky enough for that, but it was definitely a little bit worrisome from there. But um, then we went off to basic training. So I actually started basic training. And then that kind of this is where it kind of relates to the whole thing of this being like the first cycle of non-infantry MOSs training, because our drill sergeants were maybe a little bit rougher in some areas on us because, they, you know, they were kind of mad that they were doing other MOSs. They were a little bit mad that they weren't teaching infantry soldiers. Um, even though actually, I think that a lot of the, my drill sergeants weren't even infantry. I think there was one of them that was infantry. Another one, I think it was a fueler. And I think another one was an MP, but nonetheless, um, they kind of felt that we weren't, you know, kind of, uh, worthy of being hardcore or anything in basic training. So while all, a lot of the other basic training platoons had like, you know, mad dogs and, you know, all sorts of cool, you know, hardcore names, our drill sergeants actually named us the goldfish. So we were the goldfish. So like when we got called to attention, we had to go uh, goldfish lead the way, bloop, bloop. Um, when we did like weapons count to be able to get the right weapons, you had to do, you know, your battle roster number and you had to say your battle roster like 201, bloop, bloop, 202, bloop, bloop. So that was our whole thing. We even had a goldfish in our barracks and we had to keep it alive. Otherwise, if we... Uh, didn't keep it alive. Then we were going to have a funeral for it and we were all going to get smoked until we cried for the fish. So it was kind of stressful uh, trying to kill that damn fish. But one day I remember the first sergeant came in and, you know, it was, he was a pretty cool first sergeant looking back on it, but he was definitely, you know, picking on us and stuff. And he was, he was like, oh, the goldfish, you know, you know give us a hard time and checking out our goldfish. And uh, he stuck the goldfish in his mouth and then walked off with our goldfish. And we we're like, oh shit, uh, first sergeant just ate our goldfish. We are going to get smoked for that. Um, it was maybe like a minute, maybe a few seconds later, some other soldier from one of the other platoons comes walking into our barracks bay after that happened and was like, Hey, this is your guys goldfish. I mean, I mean like, like it, like, no, it's not ours. It must be someone else's goldfish. Of course it's our goldfish. So we're like, shit, we're trying to hurry up and put that goldfish back in the water. Hopefully it'll be okay. And it didn't, it didn't survive. But I think the drill sergeants cut us a little bit slack because they, they found out that the, the first sergeant kind of sabotaged us and everything and it wasn't our fault. So uh, thankfully we did not get smoked super crazy because of it being basically the first sergeant. But um, basic training was okay uh, for me. You know, it was a little scary. You know, you see some people that are failing, some people that are having a hard time dealing with it. And everything and i just tried to stay motivated but it was definitely nerve-wracking and scary and um i remember finally getting to the end of basic training 
And uh, my family was going to come out because they're from California and I was in Fort Benning, Georgia. And so it was going to be a little bit of a challenge for them to come all the way out to Georgia. And I wasn't really that worried about it. I was like I, talking to them on the phone and everything, tell them, you know, you know, it's not a big deal. I don't really care if you guys don't come out to my basic training graduation. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so we had the, the whole practice. We had to practice for graduation and everything. And you had to do a little marching and... I was pretty shitty at marching. And the thing that really sucks with that is I'm also tall. I'm like six foot two, six foot three. And so usually tall people get stuck at the front of the formation because they want the tallest people to the front. And I was like probably the second tallest one in the whole company. I think it was, there was one other guy that was taller than me. So he ended up being the pivot man, but he was pretty shitty at marching. So he ended up getting kicked out of that position. Um, and, and then I got stuck in that position. So then it was up to me to be that pivot man. And I wasn't very good at marching. So I was doing a horrible job and I ended up getting kicked out of that position. So me, him, and a few other people that were pretty shitty at marching, they kind of kicked us out of the graduation, but they were asking, they're like, Hey, does any of you guys have family coming to the graduation? And I think all of us said, no, we didn't have any family coming to us. So I think if maybe we did have family coming, then they might've been more lenient to work with us or figure out something to get us into the ceremony for the graduation ceremony. But since none of us were, were having family coming to the graduation, they just kind of stuck us on detail during the ceremony and they left us in the barracks to mop and buff and the floors and clean up and everything like that, which, you know, sounds kind of crappy. Like I didn't get to participate in the graduation, but in the end, I think it was actually pretty good because there was, there was a bunch of guys coming back after the graduation was over, telling us all about how like, oh, so-and-so passed out. It was so hot. And, you know, everybody's in their dress uniforms, you know, the class A uniform, the dress green uniform that we had back then. And, you know, it's, it's Georgia. So it's hot and humid and everything. And they were, they were like, yeah, it was miserable. We're sweating like our ass off. People were passing out left and right. Uh, so I was actually kind of glad that I didn't have to participate in that. So after graduation was over, um, we had family day and since I didn't have family, me and a few other people, we took off, went to the mall and kind of enjoyed ourselves and, you know, had a good time for the several hours that we got before we had to come back. And I remember I bought like a disc man to listen to some CDs. I bought like the new, the new corn album and I've heard of Pantera. It wasn't a new Pantera, but it was like some old Pantera CDs and some other stuff. Cause I hadn't heard music in a while, you know, it was nine weeks of not getting to listen to the music that I like and everything. So, uh, you know, I had that kind of stuff and they didn't really care for those last few days. They gave us our personal bags back and the stuff that we bought them all, we got to keep and everything. And so it was all good. And you know, we got to listen to that stuff. So, um, then it was off to AIT. Uh, I took off to AIT of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, to do ADA Mike AIT. And I remember we showed up and I think it was a Saturday thing it was we showed up and we weren't scheduled to actually start AIT until Monday. So they kind of did a little bit of paperwork to get, get us in processed and everything. And then they're like, all right, well, uh, we'll see you guys on Monday. And we're like, oh shit, uh, what do we do? Uh, this is the first little bit of freedom we've had since basic training. So me and a few other people that kind of showed up at the same time were like, all right, let's get a taxi and I guess we'll go get a hotel, I guess, uh, and just stay in a hotel. And I think I spent pretty much most of the time just sleeping, you know, I was just kind of exhausted from, you know, never getting to sleep in and basic training and, you know, going to bed late sometimes and all the training and everything like that. I think I just spent most of it sleeping. I don't think we really did anything. I think me and somebody else, I think went in half on a hotel room and ended up just, you know, I think just hanging out in the hotel room, watching TV, um, slept in. And then I think maybe there was a nearby restaurant that we walked over to and ate at and all that kind of stuff. And then was back for, for AIT on Monday. 
Um, AIT wasn't was anything too crazy. Um, you know, it was just driving trucks, practicing driving trucks, a lot of driver's ed type of stuff to kind of like learn about like how to do convoys and everything. And we had a couple of passes in there that you got to like take to to go off post. And I think I think we only actually had one after the initial one. And I think I failed like one of the written tests or something like that. And I was going to get another chance to like take it again and stuff like that. But because I failed that written test, I wasn't allowed to do the off post pass type of thing. So I ended up having to stay in the barracks while a few other people, you know, who did pass, you know, the first time go, got to go off post, you know, whatever kind of a thing. But um, AIT wasn't anything too crazy. It was only five weeks. It wasn't even very long. And it was kind of scheduled to be done by the time around Christmas. So once we were graduating and finishing up with AIT, then we got, you know, Christmas exodus and everything. And you're going to be off for that time and get to go home. And that's not very common. Like if people get to do stuff now, unless they do happen to end around Christmas exodus. Otherwise, you end up just kind of, you know, stuck reporting to your unit right away kind of a thing. So I remember it was like the, you know, we graduated. So it was the last and final day. And then we were supposed to fly out the next day to to you know go back home for a christmas exodus and everything i remember me and another guy we didn't really want to hang on the area they had a bus that was going to take us over to the airport but we went and asked the drill sergeant we were like hey is this, would it be cool if we just got a taxi and left now um early and he didn't give crap he was like i don't give crap you guys already graduated do what you want to do so so we took off so we we, we mean i think one or two other guys chipped in for a for a uh, for a taxi and went to the airport and you know, got over there early, even though it wasn't really to do anything. I guess we just kind of wandered around the airport and it wasn't that big of a deal, but left early and then got to go home um, for Christmas Exodus. I did hometown recruiting, so I got to do that. But the the nice thing about that, when I did hometown recruiting, that was free. Was it like two weeks? I think it was of leave or something like that to do hometown recruiting, maybe a week or something like that. So I got like extra leave days to, to be home. And because my recruiter station was not actually in my hometown, it was actually in a, another town about like two-ish hours or so uh, south of my hometown of Bishop, California. Uh, I, I really couldn't like do a whole lot. Normally with hometown recruiting, you would go into the recruiter station maybe every morning, maybe do PT with them in the morning and kind of help them talk to people to get them to join the army and kind of just work with them that. But because my recruiting station wasn't there, the only thing they told me to do was like, hey, just uh, make sure you, you know, talk to your friends, talk to people in the area. If you get anybody that's interested in the army, then, you know, make sure to give them my phone number and uh, and we'll come up there and we'll come talk to them. So, you know, I just kind of played it off and said, yeah, I'm talking to some people and seeing if they want to. And I think I got like one of my friends, Pat, um, to, to go and get talk to talk to them and stuff like that. I don't think Pat was really that interested in it. Pat ended up later and, and maybe several years later or whatever it was, ended up joining the Navy. But uh, I managed to get him to, to want to talk to the recruiters. So the recruiters came up, uh, talked to Pat for a little while and everything like that. And so I had that one person that they got, you know, to talk to and everything. But Pat really, I don't think, was interested in actually joining the Army. So that didn't happen, though. But um, I think one day they gave me a call. and They're like, hey, we're going to be over at your high school to talk to the high school band about how you can actually join the military to be a musician. So go ahead and, you know, you'll get into your class A's that day and we'll, we'll meet up at the high school and you can help us out with that. So I just did that for the one day. And that's really the only thing I ever did the whole entire time on hometown recruiting was the, the one time they came up to talk to my friend. And then the one time that I went to the school in my dress uniform to, um, to, to hang out with them while they talked to the army band about how you can join the military to do that. So, uh, then it was off to my first duty station, which my first duty station was Fort Riley, Kansas. So, 
showed up, um, flew in, you know, I think it was in January sometime um, of 2020. Not 2020, but 2000, sorry, of, of 2000. So show up in, in early 2000. Um, you have reception and everything. I remember this, the guy that was my roommate uh, in reception, he, he was like regretting joining the army and he was trying to get out of it. So he was trying to convince, you know, the the people there that he's a bedwetter and he pisses the bed and he sleeps walks and all this other stuff like that. And they ended up, I think, moving him to another room that, you know, he wasn't in my room anymore because of all this craziness and they were going to try to chapter him out or I don't know what they were doing with him, but you know, getting moved out of my room. So that was only like a little bit. And then it was off my first unit, which was 113 armor. And they are no longer even 113 armor. They're now like 113 cav and they're no longer in Fort Riley. I think they're like in Fort Bliss or something like that. But um, my first, that was my first unit, um, Fort Riley. They, we went to the field, we did some gunnery stuff like that. Nothing too crazy. And I was only really with 113 armor for, I think it was about two years. Yeah, it was about two years before I ended up getting a letter in the mail saying that I had orders for Korea. And I remember trying to get out of it. I didn't want to go anywhere. So I, I was dating someone at the time and everything. So I didn't want to leave and I didn't want to take off. So I was trying to get the orders deleted and get them removed so that we could stay in Fort Riley so I could spend time with this person that I was dating and everything. Um, that didn't happen. They, they, they weren't able to get the orders deleted or anything. So I was kind of stuck with it. Um, so after two years of being in Fort Riley, then I went off to Korea and I show up in Korea and they start calling off some names and me and several other people get called up and they wanted us to go to the back of the room. And I don't know what that was for. Um, we got back there and one of the things we noticed was that we were, we were all tall. So one of the guys was like, oh crap, I think we're going to honor guard, which is basically just people doing ceremonies and marching and all sorts of stuff that I hate doing and was not very good at. And so I was like, crap, I don't want to do honor guard. But uh, it turned out to be the JSA, the Joint Security Area. So they want all these tall people because it's right on the border of North and South Korea. So they want to make, make the North Koreans think that all the... Uh, uh, army soldiers are like super tall or super big and everything. So they want people who are six foot and above. So they checked the, you know, the, how, how tall we are. They checked our records that we had with us to make sure we'd have any article 15s. We can pass a PT test and everything because that's requirements to be up there. So, you know, I think there was one guy who had like article 15 or something like that in his record. So they kicked him back out and he went back to sit down in the chairs to get sent off to wherever they needed him for. And then the rest of us, we, get loaded up onto a bus and we I think we did a little bit of uh, in processing there still and then we were going off to the joint security area up north and everything so we spent like the first week in what was called the turtle barracks I remember and uh, you had to do the in processing through there you had to do a PT test and then um, during that time when I was there they were like well we we have a couple of options for you because uh, 88 mics here the joint security area drive the tour buses you can choose to do that where you'll drive the tour bus for the tours that come to for people touring the DMZ and checking out, you know, the border and everything. Or we also need 88 Mike for the fuel section uh, to drive like fuel trucks and everything. And I was like, well, I don't really want to drive tour buses. So sure, I'll, I'll, I'll work the fuel section. So they allowed me to kind of pick that. So I, I worked in the fuel section and we had these little Hyundai fuel trucks. They were stick shifts and. Uh, I was okay at driving a stick shift, but you definitely got good at driving a stick shift there because there's all these hills and everything. And if you're not very good at working the clutch, then that Hyundai fuel truck is going to roll backwards down the hill. So I, I definitely, the hard way, got used to driving a clutch uh, while I was over there. But really all the job was was just 
driving around, uh, fueling up tankers. They were all over the place, both on the base and also up on the border to run like the hot water heaters and certain other things too. And then you had the fuel point itself. This where the tour buses and the vehicles that we had at the, at the base, you know, would, would come through and get fueled up there at this little fuel point and stuff. So you're kind of working just kind of dual duties of that. And the, the thing that was kind of tough about that location was that it wasn't as lenient as a lot of like the locations farther south. Uh, because you have to keep like a you know certain percentage of people on, on post at all times, so you couldn't just leave whenever you wanted to. So you could put in for a forty pass basically uh, once a month. So you had once a month as long as you were up to date on your physical fitness test, you passed it and all that kind of stuff. Then you put in which week which weekend you wanted to take the forty pass for, and that's your time. You got to be free and you got to take off and go down south and everything. So. You know, I would do that, and I, I, I was dating someone at that time, too, um, because of the person I was dating in Kansas, you know, didn't work out. We started, we weren't dating anymore. Long-distance thing wasn't working out. So I ended up dating a Korean girl while I was over there, which actually she uh, was an English teacher. Um, she'd lived, like, in the United States for a long time, went to high school and college, and then went back to Korea and everything, was, was an English teacher. So it was kind of like having my own interpreter, basically. Um, so while I was dating her... You know, I'd go meet up with her. We'd go travel around, do stuff. She would translate for me. And it was a lot easier than getting around because I had basically my own translator practically. So I got to see a lot of cool sites and kind of get around. But it was only that one weekend a month that I usually kind of get away. Um, and another kind of cool advantage, too, of being up there was the base wasn't very big. So it was a lot of us up there at the JSA. And they would do these USO tours. So you'd have like celebrities come through and famous people to do autograph signings and pictures and everything. And a lot of times when they would go to some of the other locations farther south that are bigger, the lines were huge. You'd have these massive lines for people trying to, you know, see these celebrities and get pictures with them and everything. But because there wasn't a lot of people there at our location, the lines weren't very long. So I had a lot of good opportunities to be able to meet some celebrities. I got to meet like uh, Drew Carey, Rob Schneider, Chris Isaac. Um, Charlie Daniels, I met Twisted Sister, uh, quite a few. I, I even got to meet, um, oh man, I'm trying to remember, the guy, uh, Wayne Newton, I almost forgot his name, but uh, I got to meet Wayne Newton twice. And the second time he actually remembered me because uh, I think we, like I was talking to him briefly the first time I met him and told him where I was from and he knew where Bishop California was at. I guess he's been there and he's gone fishing there and he's gone through Bishop and everything. He, so he knew exactly where Bishop was at. He's like, oh, I know where Bishop's at. I love that place. It's a great place. So the second time I, uh, I I ended up going and seeing him again, I went and got a picture with him and everything. And he's like, hey, are you the bishop guy? And I was like, hey, I am. And so it was really cool that he actually remembered who I was kind of a thing. I was like, oh, cool. Wayne Newton remembers me. So that was kind of cool. I even got to be on uh, Good Morning America, like in the background. They, they came up there to do an, an episode and film Good Morning America live and everything. And I was in the background. I remember I think my parents like recorded on VHS, which... I'd be curious to see if they still had it, but it had me in the background on a couple moments here and there where you could see all of us kind of standing around. It was like at one o'clock in the morning because of the time difference of Korea compared to the United States and everything. And they were still shooting it live. So um, they're doing it live still. And so we we're just in the background, you know, and got to talk to Matt Lauer. And, and I think there was someone else that was there too, but Matt Lauer, I think was the, the more famous person that was there. So, uh, you know, kind of got to be on Good Morning America, sort of, in a way. Um, so spent, um, ended up spending two years in Korea because during the time when I was in Korea is when the Iraq war was starting off. I mean, 9-11 happened while I was in, in Korea, or not, not in Korea, but in Kansas, and um, all that was kind of going down. But 
not a lot of people were deploying just yet. It wasn't until I got to Korea that people kind of really started deploying to Iraq and everything. So they were stop loss, or not kind of stop loss, but like involuntarily extending people while I was in Korea. So they ended up having the option that, you know, hey, you can either, you know, get extended for six months and make it a, a year and six months, or you can voluntarily make it a full year and just do two years in, in Korea. And I originally wanted to ETS out of the army. I only wanted, only wanted to do four years uh, in the army and then get out. And then, you know, this kind of thing happened. And so I was like, well, um, I, I don't want to, I can't ETS from Korea because that was, that was going to be what was going to happen was that I was going to have to ETS from Korea. And that would mean that I'd probably have to go back home to move in back in with my parents because I wouldn't be able to line anything up afterwards. You know, once I got home, I'd have to, you know, try to live with them to try to find a job and then try to do stuff. And I didn't want to do that. So I was like, fine, I'll, I guess I'll reenlist. So that way I can get back to the States um, and then ETS out of the, you know, the States and have some kind of plan, have some kind of better kind of thing going on. So I went ahead and reenlisted so that I could, you know, ETS in the States, hopefully, and do it that way. So ended up making it a full two years of being in Korea before I went back to the States. And because I reenlisted, I got choice of duty station. So I got to choose where I wanted to go. I was trying to get Fort Irwin. Um, I didn't know, you know, what I know now about Fort Irwin, but, you know, I wanted to be closer to home. So I was going to try to get Fort Irwin. That way I'd only be about two hours away from, you know, my hometown. So Fort Irwin was not available. So I couldn't get Fort Irwin. So I was like, well, okay, how about uh, Fort Huachuca? I figured that would be the next closest one. Well, there was only two slots available for Fort Huachuca. And that was basically probably the Sergeant Major's driver and the, the uh, commander's driver for the installation. So those two slots were taken. So I couldn't get Fort Huachuca. So my next choice was Fort Carson, Colorado, because my niece was in the Air Force over there. And a lot of people I was talking to, like in Korea, had come from Fort Carson. They said they loved it. They said it was great. It was awesome. So I was like, okay, um, let's, let's do Fort Carson. So that was available. So I ended up getting Fort Carson. Um, so after two years in Korea, went to Fort Carson, showed up to Fort Carson, uh, went to the 3rd ACR, and shortly found out that 3rd ACR was going to be deploying. They were just actually coming back from Iraq. And they had told me that, hey, you're going to be deploying to Iraq here probably in the next uh, 10 months, 11 months. You know, they're just now coming back from Iraq, but we're already we already know that we're going to be going back in, in a year. So I had to kind of prepare for that. It was a little bit sketchy, a little bit scary kind of a thing because I you know never deployed to that point. So it was my very first time that, you know, I was going to be deploying kind of a thing. And so that was a little bit scary. But, um, you know, we did some field problems. We did some training, price some NTC rotations. I don't remember. Um, but then eventually it was off to Iraq and that was my first deployment. So we spent the first month in Camp Buring in Kuwait, you know, kind of getting ready and getting our equipment and everything before then pushing into Iraq. And we were originally supposed to be in Baghdad. Uh, we were going to be on camp. Um, I can't remember which one it was, not Liberty, but it was one of the other ones on uh, Biop on the, uh, in the Baghdad area right there. But we first showed up there and we, I think as soon as we arrived, maybe the next day after we arrived, we found out, Hey, don't get too comfy because we're not staying here. <laughs> we're going to be actually uh, going North. So I ended up being on this advanced party to kind of get some equipment up there and kind of get things ready for everybody else. So I actually had to go farther North ahead of everybody else. So we went up to Talifar, which is where we ended up being at and kind of getting things ready and kind of preparing for things. And, we were actually living pretty nice, I think, for that first little bit because 
um, we were living in these nice little buildings and then when everybody else showed up, well, there wasn't enough buildings for everybody. So the buildings were going to go to the higher ranking people. So they kicked us out of the buildings and we had to go live in tents. So we had to live in tents for a good four or five months or something like that of these, you know, just living these crappy conditions with like dust storms coming through, you know, getting sand all inside your sleeping bag and living, sleeping on cots and everything for a while before they eventually got more, um, more buildings for us to be able to kind of sleep inside of and everything. But, uh, uh, the mission there, when I was there for my first deployment, a lot of it was like humanitarian aid missions where we were going and dropping off halal meals, dropping off mattresses, dropping off water, dropping off all sorts of supplies to some of the villages in the area and everything. So we were doing a lot of that. There was a detention facility that we had that um, was mainly run by the chemical people because there wasn't really a job for them to do. Um, so they were kind of running the detention facility. And there was a lot of times where we had to fill in to be guards uh, the detention facility to watch the prisoners and everything. It was kind of like a transit area where it was like people that weren't yet known if they were guilty or not, they were kind of still being questioned. And then from there, they would be either sent off to like Abu Ghraib or they'd be released back to their families or released back to their, wherever they got picked up at. So that was like a kind of a middle point when we were kind of watching them. So that was a lot of the missions of what we were doing during my first deployment, which was for 12 months in Talafar. So after that came back, um, I remember I saved up a bunch of money during that deployment. I was able to pay off my car. I was I had a bunch of money in savings. So when I came back, I, I was I had a good probably like fifteen, twenty thousand, maybe something like that, saved up that I had to be able to spend. So that well, that was pretty awesome. So when I did come back, um, I, I didn't want to live in the barracks. I was tired of living in the barracks. You know, I had now been in the army for um what is be five years now at this point in time i've re-enlisted twice because i did end up re-enlisting again before deploying to iraq because it's gonna be another situation where they're like well you're gonna get stop lost while you're in iraq so you might as well just re-enlist and get a bonus so both times i re-enlisted actually all the times i re-enlisted was always for just short little two-year enlistments so it was really short re-enlistments um so you know, now I come back and I'm like tired of living in the barracks. So I asked him, I was like, hey, is it cool if I go live off post? Because I'm a sergeant now, I'm an E5. You know, I, I ended up making E5 prior to us deploying to that deployment. And so I was like, you know, can I go live off post? So they said it was okay. They said it was cool. So I remember me and a friend um, went, you know, uh, apartment shopping, looking around for apartments and everything. And, you know, found an apartment off post, which was actually in a ghetto kind of area um of town but you know it was cheap and affordable and so i could afford it so i had all this money saved up um i ended up buying a bunch of camera equipment uh computer uh all sorts of stuff for my apartment i was just you know eating out a lot having a lot of fun because i had all this money to blow and everything and so i was, I was living a good life because i had all this money you know saved up and then um we when we did come back we knew we found out that 30 acr was actually going to be moving to fort hood texas they were moving out of Fort Carson over to Fort Hood. And so then that kind of process started. So they were like, well, uh, you don't have enough time left in the army to go with them to Fort Hood, which I didn't want to go to Fort Hood, but you also don't have enough time left to stay at Fort Carson. You're probably going to come up on orders to go back to Korea. So that was going to put me back in that same situation they had before where I didn't want to ETS out of the army from Korea. So the only option for me to be able to stay in Fort Carson was to again, reenlist. So I reenlisted, this would be my third time reenlisting and it was another two-year contract type of thing they even had a bonus and stuff so i reenlisted so i stay at fort carson and then they moved me over to 410 cav so i went over to 410 cav 
and they were going to be deploying. So then it was back to the same thing of training up and getting ready and then um, ended up deploying with them to Iraq again. And this was about 2007 now it would have been. So around late 2007 now um, back back to Iraq. So went off to Iraq with 410 CAV. Um, this time we did end up in Baghdad. I remember we showed up and we were supposed to be at FOB Prosperity, which was kind of closer to the green zone. But um, then again, things changed and we found out, we know we're not gonna be at Prosperity, we're gonna be on BIOP at Camp Liberty. So all of our equipment went to Prosperity and we had to go pick up all of our equipment from Prosperity and bring it back to Baghdad and you know do all that kind of stuff for the first little bit we were there. But the main mission that I did during that deployment was barriers. We had a lot of missions where we were setting up barriers along the side of the roads to prevent against snipers, to make it harder for people to set up IEDs on these main MSRs and these main supply routes um and around police stations and all sorts of checkpoints and all sorts of stuff so a lot of barrier missions mostly during uh that deployment um but that one was a little bit better living wise because it was just me and another nco that had our own room to it so it was a little bit better um the room doesn't have like a bathroom and you still had to like walk to go to the bathroom but that one was a little bit better the px was huge there on Baghdad. I think the PX in Baghdad is actually bigger than the PX they had uh, on Fort Carson. So that was actually pretty good. They actually had, even had Taco Bell, Cinnabon, um, I think they had Popeyes. So that luxury wise was actually pretty good, but it definitely wasn't as organized as my first deployment because there was a lot of like late night missions that we were doing during this deployment and times where you'd be, you know, up all night doing these missions and come back and they're like, hey, we need you to go to do this. And I was like, uh, we just got back. I wanted to do some sleep. We ain't got time for that. And so it definitely wasn't as organized as as the first deployment. And this one was actually even longer, too, because this one was now a 12 or not 12 month deployment, but a 15 month deployment. And the idea behind that was that, you know, they're going to do 15 months. So that way, you know, when you come back, then you have 15 months back with your family before maybe deploying again rather than only a year. So, you know, it definitely dragged out for a real long time, it felt like. So being there for 15 months was pretty, pretty rough um, and everything. You spent like two Christmases over there and everything. So that was kind of a little bit kind of messes with you to make it even feel like even longer type of thing. Feels like two years, you know, because of that. So after that was all done and over with, you know, came back and that was finally at a point where then I was able to finally get out of the army. I, their stop loss was gone. I didn't have any, anything that was going to hold me back and everything like that. So I was ready to, to go ahead and get out of the army. So um, I, I didn't go into the E6 board while I was there in Iraq. I, would, I didn't really even want to, but they were kind of pushing me and making me kind of do it. So I was like, fine. So we did the E6 board, passed the E6 board. Um, came back and then they wanted me to go to BNOC, which is what it was called back then. It's now, what is it? I think ALC or something like that. I think it's ALC now. Um, so the non-commissioned officer academy that I had to go to, to make E6, to make staff sergeant. So they were pushing me to go to that. And I was like, why I'm going to be getting out of the army. They're like, well, you might change your mind. You might decide, do you want to stay in the army? I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm ready to get out of the army, but I got stuck going anyway. So I went to that and that was like a seven week thing they end up coming to us at fort carson rather than us having to go to them that we had more time with family and being in your know, home station without having to travel and stuff like that so uh ended up doing that and then even the people i think i remember at that school was like why are you here you're you're getting out of the army in like eight months or something like that and so i was like yeah i don't know um so i finished up that and you know spent some more time with my unit and everything and then uh, eventually got close to time to get out of the army, um, which is a little bit of a, a pain because I should have had more time to prepare for it. But 
I wasn't, I wasn't given the time that I, I really should have had because my role of what I was doing in that unit was the ammo NCOIC. And there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of complicated stuff with that kind of role. And they weren't too confident in my replacement to be able to, you know, fully execute the national training center because they were going to the national training center in November. I should have been starting a cap process, which is like the whole process of getting out of the army. But because they needed me so bad, I got stuck having to go to the national training center to be able to execute that. So did that. And then we came back just before uh, Thanksgiving. And then I was able to finally start doing my ACAP stuff like in December when a lot of places are like on these, on these like half day schedules. So it made it difficult. And then January comes along and I'm supposed to be getting out of the army, you know, or starting my terminal leave in January because then the amount of leave I have saved up makes sure I need to get out in January and then be on vacation until my actual ETS day, which is in March of uh, 2010. So it definitely didn't give me a lot of time to get things ready. Things were slowing me down. My platoon sergeant at the time kind of sucked pretty bad and didn't have my NCOAR ready in time. And so that delayed me and ended up making it to where I ended up having to cash in a few of my vacation days for um, for leave because I didn't have enough time to actually take all of them before I was going to get out of the army. So I had to cash in a few of them before I got out. So got out of the army, uh, 2010. Um, had that little bit of like two, two ish months, I guess it was of terminal leave to kind of, you know, kind of have as my cushion and everything and, you know, try to figure out what I was going to do. I, I kind of already had an idea what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to probably use the GI bill. So I did, I used the GI bill and got an associate's degree, uh, for television and radio. And it was during my second year of doing that, that I ended up getting the job that I do now, um, which is working as an instructor at the mission training complex in Fort Carson. I, I'd gone through the place before as a soldier and I ran into a friend of mine that I was in 30 CR with. He was working there as an IT guy and I kept in contact with him and I was like, Hey, if something opens up, let me know. So something did open up, but I was still doing full-time school at that time. So I really couldn't take the job. Um, and he was like, well, don't worry about it. There's another position that's probably going to open up pretty soon because we got this other guy that's probably going to get fired. He's, he's messing up pretty bad and probably going to get fired, which sure enough, you know, several months later, he, he did. And that was at the point in time where I was not full time anymore. So I was able to just do night classes. I had to finish up night classes while I was working there to finish up my degree and start working at the mission training complex. At that time, I was doing um, the system called VBS3, which is like for training soldiers through like this game type of thing to be able to do scenarios and it's like playing a video game. So it makes it fun. And that was fun to do and did that for about four ish years. I think it was before I started being an instructor teaching the system called JCR and JBCP, which is the navigation system that soldiers use inside the vehicles. So then I started doing that and that's what I've been doing ever since is teaching them, uh, teaching soldiers how to use that system, how to use that equipment. And um, it wasn't until actually 2017 that I kind of changed directions on my YouTube channel and started doing army content. And once I started doing that, then that's when things really kind of started taking off and kind of getting us to the point of where we're at now. Still do that currently as of recording this, you know, where I, you know, do my day job during the day and then in the evenings or weekends or whatever I have time, then I work on, you know, YouTube content and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully one day I can get to the point where I'm doing YouTube full time and that would be amazing. But for now, it's kind of just what I work with. So I guess this is the point of here, you know, podcast, right? So an additional thing adding to 
all of what I'm doing. Why am I doing the podcast? Well, uh, people have told me that like they, they like to listen to the audio of my videos. Maybe they're driving to work. Maybe they're doing a workout. They're doing stuff around the house at work, whatever. And they said that they would love to have like a audio version of it. So that's kind of the goal. Um, doing maybe an audio version where I'm teaching about some stuff, talking about some stuff and even doing some interviews. So hopefully that'll be the goal. Um, to kind of work up to, but I definitely thought, you know, it'd be good to try to get this first episode in here to talk about, you know, who I am so that you can learn about me. If you don't already know about me, maybe learn some extra things. And then, um, then we'll start getting into some episodes that kind of have some stories from my time in the army, a little bit more in depth, you know, outside of just my little cliff notes version, I guess, of, of my time in the army and get into some more in depth stories and then talking to some other people that are maybe current in the army or got out of the army and veterans and people maybe from other branches of service. So we'll kind of look at a lot of different aspects, a lot of different things and, you know, pay attention to what you guys want. So make sure you follow me on social media. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, just search for Christopher chaos or you do at that Chris chaos. That is the primary way that you can find me. I do have a Facebook. It's also Christopher chaos. I have a Twitter that I don't use as well. Um, that's also that Chris chaos and all that kind of stuff. There's a discord channel that in my YouTube videos has links to. Um, so, you know, all that content, lots of ways to reach out to me and tell me what you think about the podcast and what more you want. So thanks for, I guess, listening. Um, that's a lot about me and hopefully uh, some more further great episodes to come in the future. So thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening. I'm Christopher Chaos. I'll be talking to you again soon. See ya.